Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Greg Mankiw, the Robert M. Barron Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Greg is the author of a series of best-selling economics textbooks, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He's a first-rate academic scholar and a phenomenal blogger at Greg Mankiw's blog. Greg, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Greg, when I was an undergraduate back in the, in the 70s, which was a tough time for macro, uh, we learned what's called ISLM analysis, a version of Keynesian economics. And in that model, the economy is like an engine. You want it to go faster, you give it more gas. You push down the pedal. So if you wanted to stimulate the economy, if it wasn't where you thought it should be, you could choose fiscal policy or monetary policy. And as students, we were always shifting curves and, and finding out where the economy was going to get to after we Im- implemented these policy changes. Then I went off to graduate school, and I never saw that again. Uh, part of that was where I went to graduate school, University of Chicago, but part of it was that there was a great deal of research that was done and study that made people skeptical of the ability to fine-tune the economy. What do you think is the state of Keynesian economics and the Keynesian model, that stimulus-response model, in undergraduate and graduate education today? Well, I think the Keynesian model is actually quite alive and well. Uh, we certainly have a degree of skepticism uh, greater than was the case um, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, in part because of the work of uh, Milton Friedman and uh, and Robert Lucas, two very important Nobel Prize-winning economists. Uh, But in the the past 20 years, there's been actually resurgence of interest in Keynesian models. Uh, You know, I I have an intermediate-level macroeconomics textbook that still teaches the ISLM model, the the model that you referred to. Uh, And if you look at sort of the the research going on today, uh, pioneered by people like Mike Woodford, um, the, uh, the the basic framework of the ISLM model is, is very much there uh, in, in in the background. Keynesian uh, economics probably went through a low in sort of the late seventies when um, when Robert Lucas was was proclaiming the death of Keynesian economics. But um, but it, but while Keynesian economics well, uh, might have may have been on life support, it wasn't dead, and I think it actually made a quite a good recovery in the past twenty years. When I was an undergraduate. One of the ways that you solved an economy's doldrums, and I think I don't know if it's still true, and I apologize, I haven't haven't read your textbook lately on ISLM, but one of the ways you solved it was you ran a deficit, and that was going to stimulate the economy. Now we've been running a deficit for quite a long time in the United States, uh, you know, roughly thirty something years, with maybe one or two years of one year of surplus on an annual basis. Right. Yes. Yeah, and brief time in the late nineties. A naive interpretation of that would be, ah, that's why the economy's been growing so well. We're running all those deficits, and if we stop doing that, uh, the economy's not going to not going to uh, work as well. That, that would certainly be a a bad way to look at the world, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. No, I don't think uh, <clears throat> I don't think anyone um, would think that the main reason we've seen tremendous growth over the past thirty years has to do with Keynesian uh, demand side phenomenon. It has to do with the fact that uh, we've had tremendous technological advance. Um, and, and it's a good market economy that, that, that that's flourished. Uh, the, the phenomenon that, sort of, that Keynes tried to emphasize was that in the short run, the amount of demand for goods and services uh, could affect the level of utilization, level of unemployment, and that tools of monetary and fiscal policy can affect the aggregate demand for goods and services and therefore have short-run effects on unemployment and, um, and, and, G- and real GDP. Uh, but I don't think anyone today thinks those are those are long-lived uh, phenomena. So you know, deficit finance could for a while uh, stimulate the economy, uh, but over the longer run, uh, the world looks much more classical than Keynesian, and as a result, deficits do, um, if anything, is crowd out um, capital accumulation and, re- and reduce economic growth. When you say classical, what do you mean? Well, classical meaning that the uh, the ideas going back to before Keynes, uh, the uh, really the, the, the in the longer run, over the period of, say, a decade or so, the division of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, the 18th to 19th century economists, is probably the right one. And Keynes, I think, 
great 20th century British economist, really to give us tools to understand short-run fluctuations. But those short-run fluctuations are the, uh, a phenomena that last only a few years. And there was a great deal of emphasis in the 60s and 70s on building elaborate statistical models of different sectors of the economy and trying to combine them. Where do you think those models stand in terms of the respect that the profession has? I think as an academic matter, people have become much more skeptical of those, in, in, in part because of a lot of the critiques that Robert Lucas and Milton Friedman put forward uh, in the 60s and 70s. On the other hand, there hasn't really been a substitute due for them. Yeah, so if you're sell. at the Federal Reserve <laughs> trying to decide, you know, should I raise interest rates uh, or lower interest rates uh, in order to come, come up with the optimal balance between inflation and unemployment, there's really no tool that, come, that comes out of the uh, Friedman-Lucas uh, uh, theoretical endeavor. So what they're really left with is a, is a set of uh, models that aren't that different from the kind of models that people were building in the 60s and 70s. They've been modernized and retooled and re-estimated, um, but uh, still, monetary policy is still very much based on traditional Keynesian models uh, of the sort that economists Larry Klein and Franco Bodigliani uh, were building four years ago. So that you think the Fed actually looks at those? Absolutely. Is no, that a no, speculation? No or... look at them. Now, so the only thing they look at, and, and, and I think there's uh, differing degrees of skepticism about those models in different circles. My, my guess is Alan Greenspan was probably more skeptical uh, than most central bankers because he did not come from a sort of academic background. My guess is Ben Bernanke probably looks at them a little bit more. But I think all, all smart central bankers take them with a grain of salt. It's one mm-hmm. thing they look at, but it's sure. hardly the only thing they look at. Going back to Keynes for a minute, the one of the stranger ideas for, for me, and I'm curious your impression of it, is the Keynesian multiplier. And it, it comes back to this uh, deficit uh, stimulus idea. And I think a lot of non-economists, a lot of everyday folk, have a very um, a very good idea of what's meant by that multiplier, the idea that if, if government spends money – uh, that money is received by somebody, and then the recipients spend it, and the recipients of that spending spend it. And in that model, there's, which is used all the time to justify various government programs, at, at particularly at the state and local level, uh, those models often neglect, as did some of my undergraduate models, where the money comes from to start with. Uh, that it either comes from taxpayers in the form of taxes, or from future taxpayers if it's done by borrowing, and those models often ignored the behavioral impact uh, that that those uh, taxes and, and borrowing would have. What do you think the state of, of our understanding is of that effect of the multiplier, the so-called multiplier? I, do you agree uh, I with think, me? Yeah, that, the that, multiplier is is one of the great sort of Keynesian ideas. I think when, when people start looking at it, there's two very important caveats. One is it's only a short-run phenomenon, so it's not going to work stimulate the economy over a longer period of time. So talking about something that's only going to work over a period of a few years, over the, which is the time horizon in which these, the Keynesian aggregate demand effects uh, matter. Um, and the second is that when you actually take go to the data and actually estimate the size of these multipliers, they turn out not to be all that big, it looks like. So even if Keynes was right as a matter of theory, as, as a matter of practice, the, the, these multiplier effects may not be um, all that large. And over the longer t- t- horizon, um, which, which the Keynesian model is less important, and which these more classical ideas of you know Smith and and, and Marshall and Ricardo are, are more and more important. Um, over that horizon, then when the government spends money, it's just, it's just crowding out one for one something that the private sector would do, and maybe, and if the extent it's using distortionary taxes to fund that, it could be even worse uh, than crowding out one for one because it's going to shrink the size of the economic pie. Uh, through higher distortionary taxes. Let's go into that in a little more detail. You say crowding out some activity one for one. What do you mean by that? Well, if the government um, uh, uh, spends a dollar um, to buy to buy some, some some goods and services services produced by by the economy, well, the economy has finite resources, finite amount of capital and labor, uh, and as a result. Those doll, that dollar of resources has to come from somewhere else, and depending on how it's financed and a variety of other details, um, it could come out of private consumption, it could come out of uh, private investment, but that, that dollar of resources is not created out of, out of, out of whole cloth. It's, it, it's usually reducing um, spending somewhere else in, in, in the economy. Now, it could even be worse than a dollar 
dollar crowding out if that, that dollar of government spending is financed by higher tax rates then turn discourage people from working discourage people from accumulating capital it could be the case that a dollar of government spending is actually going to reduce the size of the um, this total size yeah. of the economic pie yeah one of the responses i think that the advocates of those kind of policies often make is that well that would be true if the economy were at full employment or or if if capital utilization was was 100% but it it never is there's always slack. What's your reaction to that argument? Well, the economy always the economy needs some degree of slack. You're never going to operate an economy at 100% uh, employment. That is, some firms are expanding, some are shrinking. When firms are shrinking, people get laid off and have to take some time to look for new jobs. So there is that sort of normal um, level of slack in the economy, what Milton Friedman termed the natural rate of unemployment. So when people so when you think about the economy being fully employed, you shouldn't think of full employment as meaning 100% employment, zero unemployment. You should think of full employment as being a sort of a normal or natural level uh, of unemployment uh, to, to accommodate the fact that there's this, this turnover and people are going to take will, will optimally take time to look for jobs. And when one job disappears, it doesn't make sense, sense to take the first job that you, that you find. It takes, makes sense to, to look around and see what your best options are. And as a result, there will be some normal level of unemployment, even in a, in a in a fully employed economy. One of the ways that the intuition behind this multiplier idea, which again I think is is somewhat pernicious, um, it sort of promises a free lunch that that often disappears, is in the way that we talk about tax cuts. Uh, there's a I think it's very hard for politicians and and many uh, pundits to keep straight the incentive effects versus the distributional effects of tax cuts. And they often sell tax cuts as a Keynesian multiplier of sorts, that that somehow tax cuts inject money into the economy. But of course, the money has to come from – the resources have to come from other taxpayers or future taxpayers, which in turn induces uh, effects. It would really be nice if if um, advocates of, of tax cuts or critics would keep in mind the, the role of tax rates as prices rather than as generators of flows of income. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are, tax policy is complicated because there are different effects over different horizons. Um, during the most recent tax cuts, the, the economy was – struggling to, to recover from a recession. And as a result, a lot of the rhetoric about tax policy involves sort of short-run Keynesian effects to try to stimulate demand in order to get us out of the recession. Um, but once the economy approaches sort of normal levels of employment, then you, wanna, you don't want to think about these Keynesian demand side effects. You want to think about the effects on incentives and the effects on the government's present value uh, budget constraint um, and uh, and think about how it's going to affect people's incentives to work, people's incentives to accumulate capital, uh, and 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 you have to realize there are no there are no, there are no free lunches. That uh, the, extent, the more the more one redistributes income, for example, the higher tax rates are going to be, the less incentives they're going to be, and the smaller the uh, size of the economic pie. That what we'll end up with. Well, let, let's switch gears for a second and talk about deficits generally. Uh, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing when I when I'm on an airplane talking to a stranger is trying to explain to them why. It's okay for the U.S. government to run a deficit, at least in principle. Uh, do you worry about deficits? Do you think the size of the budgetary deficit is something to be worried about? Well, I'm not worried about uh, the current size of the deficit, which is sort of modest by historical standards. And the current deficit is certainly, if it stayed at this size, would be would be sustainable, definitely, given economic uh, growth. What I'm worried about in current fiscal policy is the long-term projection. Because long-term projection has spending, especially on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, skyrocketing as the baby boom generation retires and draws on these programs, and as healthcare costs continue to continue rising, um, these programs will, will continue to grow as a percentage of GDP. Tax revenue is, is, is roughly stable as a percentage of GDP, and as a result, deficits are going to become unsustainably large uh, unless there's a change in, in, in current law. So I am, I am, I am so I'm worried about deficits, not where they are now, but worried about with the deficits that could arise if nothing happens going forward over the next 10, 20 years. Now something's going to happen. We're not going to, we're not going to, these programs can't continue to grow at this level of taxation. So either the, the, the 
the benefits are going to be reined in, spending is going to slow the growth of spending, or taxes are going to go up to, say, levels we see in, in Western Europe. Um, I'd personally rather see reform done on the spending side, but that's an, it's just, it's a big challenge, and that's the part of fiscal policy that does concern me. Yeah, I worry about that too, although you know, those spending cuts, which are politically unpalatable today, <clears throat> will be more palatable if the economy continues to grow. When we have more resources, the tax increases will be more palatable as well. I, I just find it strange that people are complaining about the political system not solving that problem today. We're not really – the incentives aren't there to solve it today for today's politicians. And the tools to solve it today aren't really there to put money aside in any real sense at the, gov- at the federal level. Right, right. And I think well, that's one of the things that President Bush learned uh, when he tried <laughs> to do, yeah. do Social Security reform, that there was not a – a big political incentive for politicians to to take this on. Uh, I, but I'm not so concerned that they, they they make a change in the program as they affect people right today. In fact, I, my guess is that they couldn't uh, politically. But what I think they can do is put into place a path of future policy changes that w- would sort of rein back some of the promises we're now making. Because the, the problem is that we, if you go to somebody who's now, say, 30 or 40 years old, you can tell him, oh, we would like you to work a few years longer or uh, or we need like, to save a little bit more to fund your retirement. But if you don't tell him that now, when he turns 60, it's going to be hard to, to tell him at that point, oh, by the way, yeah. we'd like you to work a few years longer. Right. Telling so you th- I, yeah, exactly. Uh, what do you think of having been in the trenches in, in Washington, D.C., what do you think about the state of the budgetary process and how that interacts with the deficit? It's a very strange uh, world for those of us on the outside. Um there's an impression – I don't know if there's any evidence for it. There's an impression that the size of the deficit, as you say, not not so worrisome at, at current levels as a percentage of the whole economy, but that the deficit itself does rein in the spending impulses of, of Congress and the president and that that's a good way to do it. It's a very strange way to do it. it it's a very – bizarre constraint because it's not firm in any real sense. Um, in what sense is there any budget constraint for government today other than a feeling that, well, if the deficit gets too big, it's it's bad? That's a, hard, that's a very good question, a very hard one. You know, economic theory tells us there's basically one budget constraint that government faces, which is a, a present value budget constraint, the present value of of spending is tied down to the present value of tax revenue. But that's not how decisions are made. Decisions are made on a year-by-year basis, and it's very hard to see how that how that budget, that present value, infinite horizon budget constraint plays itself out through the political process. Um, there is probably more focus in Washington uh, on the the current cash flow budget deficit than economic theory would would it, could justify. Uh, that, may, that may not be a bad thing, given that the political process is not good at dealing with present values. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but it's, it's clearly a very different way of thinking about the problem than uh, our, our models uh, tell us is appropriate. Yeah, it's a very um, – I'm skeptical of, of hard and fast rules in certain settings. Uh, you know, obviously you want some flexibility to – borrow when you're an individual and you want government to have the flexibility to borrow in, in times of crisis. Uh, but for borrowing to be the uh, modus operandi, the, the sort of standard way of doing things in day-to-day life for government strikes me as not a very healthy political economy. I think that that's probably, that's, that's probably right. Now, in recent weeks, you've been involved in a, a little controversy about tax rates and deficits um, based on your history as a advisor to the president and then as a scholar trying to estimate the impact of tax rates. Um, for some reason, this, this has something to do with uh, the Laffer curve, which is to me a, a self-evident fact that, in, that it's imaginable that if you raise taxes high enough, you could cut them and raise more money. But whether we're near that point in practice is obviously just an empirical question. Um, what have you done in, in your research on this topic? What have you found? And what 
about uh, about whether tax cuts quote pay for themselves close quote, and what's the what's the controversy that's going on now in Washington? I, I wrote a paper. Um, I guess the project started a few years ago and it's just recently been published uh, with with, a, um, with Matthew Weinzerl, who's a, who's a grad student at Harvard. And what what Matthew and I did was we looked at a um, a very standard model of economic growth and asked the question of to what extent when one cuts taxes uh, do, do they generate growth and, and pay for part of the the static cost of that tax cut. And this this issue in Washington goes by the name of dynamic scoring because when you start to estimate the cost of a, a of a tax change, the score of the cost of a tax change, to what extent do you get uh, revenue feedback effects? Coming th- th- through the dynamics of economic growth, through the incentives we, of of lower tax rates, right? That, that's right. So we have lower tax rates, which which, which would stimulate uh, saving and at work uh, effort, and that in terms would mean would mean larger um, GDP. And so what we did we took what was a very standard model of economic growth, the one that's sort of taught in all graduate schools across the country, and said, okay, in this model, if we calibrate it with very standard parameter values taken from the literature, how much? Um, Feedback do you get uh, through through economic growth? And what we found was that um, for a cut in in labor taxes, um, say a payroll tax cut, that about 17% of the uh, static revenue loss was was paid for through a larger GDP in the long run. Uh, if you cut taxes on capital, uh, uh, say, say say a dividend tax cut or a corporate tax cut, then about half of the uh, revenue loss was was recouped through through higher economic growth. And for an income tax cut, which is a combination of labor taxes and and uh, capital taxes, it'd be about a quarter uh, was is paid for through higher economic growth. Now, to my surprise, this paper has been picked up by both people on the right and people on the left as supporting their positions. It's been slightly surreal to sort of watch how people react. People on the right um, have said, "See, see, we were told all along that lower taxes are good for economic growth, and this and this is this this confirms uh, what we've been saying." And people on the left said, "See, we've been telling you the tax cuts don't pay for themselves. You only you only get, um, you know, something something between 17 and 50 percent uh, feedback. Uh, that's not, they, these things. Tax cuts are not self-financing. So we've had both conservative and um, liberal uh, commentators sort of cite our paper as as, as support for the, for their position, which I think is, at least to me, it's slightly slightly humorous. The, the paper is available on the web. It's a very technical paper. Yeah, it's, it's available on the web. It's been published in the Journal of Public Economics, which is a uh, academic journal aimed at other um, nerdy economists like myself. Right. It's not a, it's not a light reading for those people who have a casual interest in tax policy, but but the findings are very I think are very interesting, and a, and a thoughtful person would understand that uh, tax cuts. I should say I, I try to be careful when I talk about tax cuts. Changes in tax rates, right. as opposed to say just charging people less money. Uh, to the, having them pay less to the government. Those are two very different things. Sending a smaller check to the government is not the same as your income being taxed at a lower rate. Taxing your income at a lower rate may result in you spending a sending a, lower, a smaller check to the government, but it's the incentive effects of that that, that that we're interested in as economists. So what you found is that the incentive effects could be quite large, particularly for capital gains uh, tax rate changes. And that, but of course, Given the current level of tax rates and the current estimates of responsiveness of people to these incentives, they're not a free lunch. Uh, they're just not quite as expensive as you might have thought. That's is that exactly a good way, right. Is that a good way to summarize that's, it? That's, that's precisely correct. Um, what's missing from the current debate, unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, and I'd like to hear what you think, is not a reduction in taxes but a change in tax structure. Because the real issue isn't let's cut taxes – shouldn't be. Let's cut taxes 10 percent. The real issue is, is there a way of raising the money we currently raise via the current tax structure? Is there a way to raise that same amount of revenue with a more effective, less destructive mechanism? We have this incredible hodgepodge of different kinds of taxes. We have payroll taxes. We have uh, the, and not just straight payroll taxes. We have weird so security and then regular withholding, and then we've got capital gains and dividends and all the complexity. Uh, it, if we lowered tax rates but r- changed the things we taxed, we could raise the same amount of money 
in a more effective way, correct? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the basic mantra for, for your tax reform is broaden the base, lower the rates. And that was done very successfully in um, 1986, and that reform has slightly unraveled over time. Uh, there was another attempt at that recently with the president appointed a panel uh, to examine fundamental tax reform that reported, I think, about two years ago now. Uh, they included two very prominent economists. One is Eddie Lazier, who's now chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and the other is Jim Paterba, prominent public finance economist at MIT, uh, as well as a variety of other uh, uh, people uh, from different walks of life, including some from the political process. And they put out a a, a very um, credible document talking about how exactly how, given where we are now, you could continue to broaden the base and lower tax rates and how uh, and move towards a better uh, tax system. The problem is that. Doing that, you quickly run into a lot of political obstacles. I mean, there are a variety of, uh, of deductions that are very popular politically that, that economists would be very happy to scale scale back. So, for example, you know, the state and local tax deduction, I think, is a very strong case to be made for eliminating that. There's no particular reason that Bizarre. people in high-tax <laughs> states should get subsidized relative to people in low-tax states by the federal government. Um, the uh, mortgage interest deduction is, is, is another deduction that's politically very popular, uh, and the panel proposed scaling that back quite dramatically. Uh, but that it sells like hotcakes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, people exactly. love getting rid of that. Economists one. love the idea of scaling back that deduction, but as far as I can tell, the realtors of America and, and most homeowners are not so fond of the idea. Um, and another is the um, uh, the, deduct- the exclusion for uh, of employer provided health insurance. Mm-hmm. And I understand the Bush administration is is, is thinking about uh, t- taking that on to some extent. There was an article just in yesterday's uh, Wall Street Journal talking about how that's being looked at inside the administration. And certainly, I know there are people like Al Hubbard in the administration who have written about that in the past. Uh, and a lot of economists have suggested that they, they, that we have too much employer-provided health insurance. That it's, it, the co- insurance is too comprehensive; it's not enough being paid out of pocket because we're subsidizing. Um, uh, employer-provided health insurance through the tax system. It's no doubt true. And I think one of the one of the challenges there, which of course isn't going to be met, but it's almost impossible to meet it, but without more economic education. But one of the challenges there is that the average homeowner and the average uh, user of employer-subsidized health care sees the benefits. Uh, don't it's hard, much, much, much harder to see the costs of that policy. So the political incentives for fixing that are very small. The strange thing is that – and this is a um, thing that worries me that I don't hear much about. We're moving to a system where a, the opposite of what you what you said, which you said the ideal system is you, you lower the rate and you broaden the base. We keep narrowing the base because politically it's it's always good to pay off folks and tell them they don't have to pay any any taxes. So the income tax is increasingly paid by a smaller percentage of the public at large. Now, there's an illusion in, inside there, which is that the payroll tax, which is supposedly financing Social Security, isn't financing Social Security. It's financing general expenditures. There's a terrible ruse and a deception going on that started a you know, long, long time ago that most people assume – most people don't notice, which is that their, their so-called Social Security taxes finance – anything that government does. But if you just look at the income tax, for political purposes, uh, the proportion of income tax paid by uh, the bottom half of the population is tiny. And what that leads to is a demand for government. The political economy, that is what I worry about. It it creates a demand for government by a large segment of the population whose, whose share of an additional dollar is incredibly small. So strangely enough, they want additional dollars. Do you worry about that? Um, yes, to some extent. To some extent, I do, and it raises the question of what is the optimal uh, progressivity of the of, of the tax system. It's actually an issue that I think, in terms of the economists, don't have um, um, a monopoly on. I mean, it's a question that involves as much issues of political philosophy as it does uh, economics. I mean, to some extent, it's economics and what are the distortionary effects of taxes, how to hire tax rates shrink the size of the economic pie, but also depends on one's fundamental political philosophy. That is, you know, when you read John, John Rawls and Robert Nozick, which political philosopher more appeals to you? Um, if what, the followers of, of John Rawls 
aren't, aren't as bothered by the fact that the people at the bottom are paying income tax and indeed would be happy to sort of expand the earned income tax credit in order to, to lift the people at the bottom up. Followers of, um, of Robert Nozick are, are, are far fundamentally more libertarian and don't think it's a, a role for the federal government to uh, correct the distribution of income. But those fundamental questions of political philosophy in some sense are beyond the scope of economics. And um, you know, when, I, when I teach students, uh, freshmen, I, we, we, I, we go through the different arguments and I talk about both Rawls and Nozick as different philosophers, but I say at the end of the day, oh, not all of economic policy is about economics. Some of it's about one's basic view of what the role of government should be. Absolutely. But even within that political philosophy debate, and uh, I'm not only more sympathetic to Nozick, I'd certainly rather read him on any given day than, than Rawls. Um, I wonder how many people in the world alive today have read the entire theory of justice word for word. I would not be in that group, <laughs> although I own it and I have looked through it. I've read many pages, uh, many individual words, but I've read all of uh, Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which that's a wonderful book, uh, both in terms of content and style. But even within that debate, um, economics does play a role in the following sense, and I think Rawls clearly understood this, and I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say. Economics plays a role in the following sense. If you think philosophically the government has a role in helping uh, the least well-off among us, you should still worry about the incentive effects and the overall well-being of those folks both now and in the future and in their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives if the means of redistribution is so destructive that it only produces a short-term benefit and a lot of long-term harm. And I think that's where economics does have a role to play in, in that political philosophy debate. I think the thing – societies that have embraced the Rawlsian view, at least on paper, have not served the lowest uh, members of the economic distribution particularly well. They have they have they have claimed to, but that doesn't often work out very well. I think that's right, and I think it's in part because people who design social programs are often engaged in wishful thinking, hoping that their that their programs are not going to have adverse incentive effects, or that the adverse incentive effects will not, will not uh, lead to a lot of perverse behavior, whereas in fact, over time, as we study these programs, we realize these people really do respond to incentives, um, and, and those incentive effects are really quite important for the design of programs, which is why you even had a, say, a, Demo a liberal Democratic president like um, uh, Bill Clinton endorse what looked like a very conservative welfare reform bill in 1996, precisely because he was cognizant of, of the, um, the adverse incentive effects of such programs. I hope you're right. That's always a possibility that a politician endorses something because he thinks it's a good thing, as opposed to the more cynical view that he endorses it because he thinks it'll keep him uh, in in power. Uh, but let's move to a more um, uh, uh, speculative policy that you've been advocating, which is the Pagu Club. Pagu is spelled P-I-G-O-U for for the listeners out there. Tell us who Pagu was and what's the club about. Oh yeah, Arthur Pagu was a um, famous uh, 19th-century uh, British economist, uh, roughly a contemporary of, 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 of Keynes. Um, uh, and one, one, of the, one of the ideas uh, that that he had, which is why why the Pagu Club is called the Pagu, Pagu Club, is to is to use taxes as a way of correcting what economists call externalities, that is spillover effects. From certain activities. So, if, for example, a um, if, if if driving uh, and burning gasoline emits certain uh, pollution, uh, the one way to deal with with, with that pollution and to encourage people to to not overdrive and not to emit too much pollution would be to say tax gasoline or or or, or tax um, um, hydrocarbons more broadly. So. Uh, what 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 the what basically said is we should use taxes in order, in order to correct certain f forms of market failures. Uh, so the the Pagu Club is is really just a, a rhetorical device that I've created on my blog, of basically listing a variety of of economists and other commentators who have publicly advocated uh, higher Pagovian taxes, such as higher gasoline taxes or a, a carbon tax, in order to deal with global warming. 
Um, and if you look at the list, it's, uh, the list includes quite a large number of um, of, of prominent economists and, and commentators, including people of both the uh, right and the left. So you have people like Larry Summers and Alan Greenspan, for example, who have both at some point uh, endorsed higher uh, gasoline taxes as a way of, to both raise government revenue and to and cor- to correct market failures associated with with externalities. Well, just a brief anecdote. My memory of of Pagu, I th- I think this is a true story. Maybe one of our listeners can verify it, or maybe you can, Greg. But my memory is is that Pagu was a student of Marshall, Alfred Marshall, and that I was told that when he was literally a student, when he was a student in, in Marshall's lectures, that he was the only student. That Marshall would come in, put his notes down on the lectern, and start reading uh, as Pagu sat in the front row. <laughs> By himself, uh, listening to the master. Have you ever heard that story? No, I did not know that. I don't know if it's true. It's a good story. In fact, it might be the case that in one of the versions I heard, there were two students to start with. One of them dropped out. Uh, maybe it was just too surreal for him, and, and that left A.C. Pagu, young Arthur, sitting there uh, uh, scribbling furiously, no doubt. Um, but let's talk about this uh, tax. Uh, make Make the case for it. You talk about externalities. So the an externality would be an example where your actions impose a negative externality. Would be an example where your actions impose harmful effects on others that you don't have to bear. And therefore, in economics, we'd argue that things that produce negative externalities get overdone because you don't bear the full cost. Things that produce positive externalities are underdone and not done in a sufficient amount. So the Pigouvian world – that's the adjective for Pigou uh, – the Pigouvian world – is one where we want to uh, tax negative externalities and subsidize positive externalities. So in your opinion, what are the negative externalities associated with gasoline that would merit such a, a tax? Well, I think there's a variety of them. Um, part, part, of, part, part of them is, is, uh, is, in, is environmental. I mean, uh, gasoline does emit a variety of po- po- pollutants. Gasoline emits, for example, our car- car- carbon dioxide, and carbon is a... Uh, often viewed to be a cause of global warming. Now, in the scientific debate over global warming, I have I have no comparative advantage, so I won't even opine. But but, but, but to the extent that one is worried about global warming and, and carbon emission, the most natural thing to do is to tax things that emit carbon, such as gasoline. But in addition to uh, pollution, pollution, the other sort of externality associated with driving is congestion. I live in a major metropolitan area in the Boston area, and I spend lots of time sitting in traffic. It's going very slowly. There's lots of other people on the road. So basically, every time anyone decides to, to drive somewhere, drive to work, drive, drive to the grocery store, they're conveying a negative externality to everyone else because they're adding to road congestion and slowing everyone else down. And that, so that road, road congestion is a, is a form of externality that can be dealt with uh, indirectly through a gasoline tax. Now, a more direct way to deal with road congestion would be road pricing, whereas if we, if we had all these... If we had level fast passes in all our cars and all roads were um, uh, had, had had readers, you could actually charge people explicitly when they drove on congested roads, and not charge them when they drove on less congested roads. Uh, that would be sort of a first best way of dealing with congestion externalities. So a gasoline tax is a sort of second best way of dealing with those congestion externalities in the absence of sort of of, of road pricing. Yeah, the problem with the road pricing is that uh, the externality is uh, borne by the the people who are causing it, unlike a traditional externality. It's true that when you get on the road, you, you slow everybody else down, but you're also going a little slower than, than the previous drivers. So when you put that tax on, uh, to reduce people's driving, you've got to make it more expensive to drive, which means that essentially you have to take resources away from drivers. Now, they do get in return less congestion, but it has to be the case, at least at the margin, and it could be the case for most or many drivers that you have to make them worse off from driving. And so the political economy of that I've, I've always viewed as a um, very unlikely uh, policy change. It, uh, it has been implemented. Well, the question is what you do with the revenue. Right, exactly. And you, mean, you, uh, it's, uh, the economist was, my, my goal is to use the revenue in, in order to to lower other taxes, or so the other taxes won't have to go up as much. I mean, we have a, long, a long-term fiscal gap, so either spending, as we talked about earlier, is going to go down, or taxes are going to go up. And to the extent that taxes are going to go up, I'd rather have them be relatively efficient taxes, like a Bogovian tax. But see, that's one of the reasons I'm not a member of the club yet. I'm, I'm, 
I'm open-minded, Greg. You know, you have at least five or ten minutes here to change my mind and any of our listeners. One of the things that one of the things I worry about, and I'll come to a couple other worries I have, but one of the things I worry about is that that's a nice thought that we would use it to substitute for other taxes. Is it reasonable? Uh, Milton Friedman has said, I think many times, I've never met a tax cut I didn't like. I think the corollary of that, I've never heard him say this, but I think a corollary to that would be I've never met a tax increase that I liked. And I think his skepticism about that would be that tax increases are not then in turn lead to tax reductions. They just lead to spending increases in line with our previous discussion. Do you have any reason to think that would be any different in this case? Well, I, I, we have cut taxes. So this idea that, we, that, that one can never cut taxes, I think, is, is, is clearly not right. President Bush did cut taxes quite substantially in 2001 and 2003. Um, so I don't think it's impossible. If you have the view that all tax increases are bad, and, and you just leave, the, you leave your conclusion at that, then you're basically in a position as an economist where you say, I can't judge one tax versus another tax. And it seems to me we need a somewhat more subtle an economic analysis that be able to tell policymakers, you know, some taxes are, are 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 better than other taxes. And when thinking about how we're going to raise money for the government, let's use the good taxes and not the bad taxes. So if you so if you're not a member, if, you, if you're not a member of the Pagu Club, you think you don't like tax increases, then it sort of puts you in a box of saying anything that has more tax in it is bad, and and then you're you're leaving the debate to how the government should raise its revenue to, to non-economists. Well, let me let me try to defend my position a little bit more subtly then give you another chance to whack at me. Um, if, if we raise gasoline taxes in the hopes that we would reduce taxes somewhere else, I would argue that would not be the case. That What we will end up doing is spending more, which is exactly what we have been doing steadily for a long time, so that what appear to be tax cuts, that is reductions in tax rates in the short term, are not particularly likely to lead to uh, long-term tax reductions unless we find a way to rein in spending. And since a rise in the gasoline tax would add to the pile of stuff that government gets to play with, I would like to take away that piece of the sandbox. Well, it depends on how the bill was written. I mean, let's suppose the bill was written saying we're going to slowly increase the gasoline tax, say, um, 10 cents uh, uh, per year until it reaches, reaches a dollar, dollar and a half or something. Uh, and in at the same time, we're going to make the tax cuts that President Bush passed into law, which now expire, I believe, in 2010, if I recall. We're going to make those permanent. And, and it would, well, let's imagine that we, I, 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 we jiggle the numbers in a way that, that that bill is revenue neutral. Would you be in favor of that? Well, we're getting closer. Uh, that would be good. That would be better than just raising the, the gasoline tax. Oh, no, I understand. Yeah, I think it has to be done in the context of more comprehensive tax bill that that. that, that Deals with how, how the revenue is going to, to be to be used. My other my other hesitancy, and, and I, I'll give you a chance to respond. My, my other hesitancy is two th- two issues. As you said a while back, we want to lower rates and broaden the base. When we start taxing individual products as a source of revenue, I think the politics of that is very destructive, and uh, not. It is likely to lead to a great deal of mischief. Once we argue as economists that it's good on efficiency grounds, say, to tax gasoline higher than it already is taxed, well, then what about other products? Um, shouldn't each product, according to Pagu, bear its own uh, efficient tax rate? And then what ultimately happens is that you don't get the efficient tax rate you get the politically designed tax rate. And you've you've admitted as much in your work, and you have to, that we don't really know precisely what the optimal tax rate is on gasoline or whiskey or uh, cards or whatever else people decide are harmful. Uh, tobacco would be an obvious another example. And then I look at the tobacco case and the politics of the tobacco settlement uh, actually, I think there's a good argument for subsidizing tobacco on pure externality grounds, on the budgetary externalities, which is, I think, in, you know, f- theoretically incorrect that, that people look at budgetary externalities as a justification for taxation. But if you do look at them, tobacco kills people early and quickly relative to some other things that saves people uh, health care costs that are that are subsidized. It, it saves uh, social security payments we talked about earlier. So you could actually make a case on 
so-called externality grounds that you should subsidize tobacco. But put that to the side. Uh, if there is a case, even for a, for a positive tax on tobacco, the way that settlement's actually turned out, doesn't that give you some pause about that Pigouvian tax on gasoline? Well, I think sure. I think the political process is always a risk that they're going to get things wrong. But but having economists come out against optimal Pigouvian taxes is not going to take politics out of the tax process. Politics is there inside the tax writing process. Having economists fail to advocate first best Pigouvian taxes is not is not going to help matters in that regard. So politics is, is absolutely there. The only thing I think economists can do is sort of, sort of acknowledge that and sort of call it like we see it. And if we think this is a, this is a, a, a good tax from the standpoint of economic efficiency, I think we shouldn't avoid saying that simply because we think, aha, well, if I say this, all of a sudden the, the, the tax policy will be politicized. Well, tax policy is already politicized. That's just a fact of life. And what, what economists can do is say, you know, here's our best advice and not in some sense hide our best advice because we somehow think that our best advice is going to make the world more political than otherwise would be. The world is political. That's just a fact. That's a fact of, of life, um, which is why we do have sort of a crazy tax system to a large extent. Yeah, so I think enough. the best we can do as economists is sort of give our – go to politicians, give them best advice, go to op-ed pages, tell voters what our best advice is, and persuade as many people as we can. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, I think it's a tough, it's a tough question. We, we've – Grappled with it a little bit in previous podcasts with uh, your colleague Ed Glazer and with Richard Thaler. We talked about this concept of libertarian or soft paternalism as to whether you should take into account when you advocate for a policy uh, what the political consequences of that advocacy would be. You know, in this case, I understand the externality arguments for uh, on the uh, pollution side. Potentially on the global warming side, if the science is correct, and, uh, for the advocates of that. Um, but I think as economists, we would do best to describe those effects, whether we should advocate them. I think we should take into account the likely political effects. But maybe that's a uh, that's a. Uh, I think it, it, I've always wrestled my own mind how to deal with political constraints as an economic advisor because it's a tough one <laughs> if, if, if you really say i'm going to take into account all political constraints you end up recommending the status quo because the status quo is the outcome of the process given all the political constraints that everybody faces well, i think that's the george stigler view of the world i think george stigler uh, yeah, therefore you should sort of avoid making any recommendation right. at all stigler's ad stigler, stigler's view at least uh, this may be a character but I don't, I don't i don't think so i think stigler's view was the world is as it is because of the incentives that are in place already. Uh, arguing for a different set of outcomes is quixotic. It's a waste of time. And as, as economists, we are uh, scientists who observe the process in action. And, and trying to advocate a particular policy change would be like a physicist advocating a change in the law of gravity. But, of course, in the real world, economists do affect policy outcomes, and, and Stigler's counterpart was Milton Friedman, who took a much more idealistic or quixotic view of things in the positive sense. He tilted at a lot of windmills, and some of them fell down. So, um, you know, empirically, I think Stigler was, wasn't was correct, although it's easy to delude ourselves into thinking that that we influence things. When I interviewed Milton and asked him about the impacts of his ideas, he, was, he constantly said in a, in a previous podcast that it was experience that was important in, in changing the world, not so much the intellectual environment. But I guess that's a, de a debate that's very hard to to, uh, to parse accurately. I think it is right. And I th I, on this Milton Friedman versus Stigler divide, I'm much more on the Milton Friedman side. I'm, I'm willing, willing to, to uh, tilt at a few windmills, uh, rec recognizing that um, – it, it is it is largely a quixotic uh, activity, and to be modest in what, what, what one's aspirations are going to be. One more point on the Pugu tax idea: the um, the impact of Ronald Coase on the profession. One of his most important contributions was to challenge the Paguvian tax as a um, uh, as a policy um, solution, and. He did that in something that has come to be called the Coase Theorem, which is a strange um, strange way that it gets described. And I think his ideas, which is a sufficient uh, way to describe it, Coase's ideas in his famous paper on social cost uh, 
certainly challenged Pigou's ideas. And the way I would describe it in this case, and I'd like to get your reaction, I would describe it in this case as saying, okay, well, let's say uh, carbon does, carbon dioxide and other uh, results of driving do lead to global warming. Whether we want to put a tax on or not to discourage driving and, and the burning of, of fossil fuels, whether we want to do that would depend on the costs of alternative ways of coping with global warming. So that if there were, uh, to take an, uh, just a, a silly, simple example, if global warming, if the main effect was to make us less comfortable because it was hot, um, then there are two ways to solve that problem. One is to put the tax on gasoline and discourage people from driving, if indeed that does lead to global warming. The second is to invest in air conditioning, which is another way to solve that that hardship. Any uh, I get any traction there for you in, in being a little more skeptical about the, your own membership in the club? Oh, I, I, this, I think that's right. There are a variety of different uh, ways to ultimately respond. And um, as a result, trying to figure out what the optimal carbon tax is, is, is tricky. I mean, the, the pure coast theorem, which is that bar markets can do it all by itself, you know, you never need Pigovian taxes of any sort, is, of course, a, applies only to a world with zero transactions costs. And, a, world, yeah. a world that is unrealistic and that Coase himself exactly. said was unrealistic. It bothers me when people say that's what Coase said. It, that's one piece of it. The second part that Coase said, which I think is what I consider the Coase theorem, to, what it, to the extent it's a theorem, is that because transaction costs are not zero, be careful where you put liability, be careful where you put responsibility, be careful where you put property rights, and take into account the costs. Well, exactly. No, I think it is tricky, and that's why it's hard to figure out what the, what the optimal tax, taxes are. And in that world with transactions costs, you do, there's, there's still a market failure that needs to be dealt with, but trying to figure it out is, is, is much more difficult. I heard one economist say, for example, that the optimal response to global warming is over a period of several generations, will slowly migrate to Siberia. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, people have a lot, many ways to adapt to a, change, to a changing environment, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on global warming, so I have no idea what the optimal carbon tax is. Uh, I think some of the more concrete externalities, like congestion, I think are much easier to get, get your mind around because those are easy, more, easy, more easily estimated. And, and, and I think in much more concrete and, and less dependent on controversial science. Yeah, the problem with the, with the congestion one is the uh, the bluntness of the gasoline tax as a way to do that. For That's me, true. for me, it's a much more compelling case for pollution generally, because clearly an extra mile of driving uh, leads to a, a little more of of various particulates in the air. Uh, but an extra mile of driving doesn't lead to more congestion if you manage to do it at three in the morning. Uh, here in Washington D.C. or in Boston, those no, that's, are, that's, that's, that, there's no question that, that that's true. It's a perfect instrument. The other, but unfortunately, the other thing to say about, about that is we, we we're now using even worse instruments for other things. We have these corporate average fuel economy standards, which are incredibly regulatory, incredibly heavy-handed, replete with unintended consequences. And one of my goals of using things like gasoline taxes is to offer some regulatory relief, is to sort of get is to do something that's less intrusive in the market than the heavy regulations we have of, of the auto industry right now. Well, that'd be an interesting uh, club, the, the club that said we'll raise gasoline taxes, we'll get rid of CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards. What else can we throw in there to, to get the uh, the uh, skeptics on board? But th- I think that's a very um, – that is well, an attractive – There's a whole variety of arguments. So one of them is also the incidence argument. Uh, some economists have argued that if we had higher gasoline taxes, a large fraction of that tax would be borne by the oil – suppliers, not the oil oil consumers, as we know from basic economics, the instance of any tax is is borne by both sides of the market to varying degrees. And in this case, to the extent that we, we end up consuming less oil because of higher gasoline taxes, the, pr- the price of oil in world markets will fall, and therefore part of the tax will in effect be paid by Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and other the other countries that, that sell oil on world markets. Yeah, it's an interesting... Uh... That, that's the argument, the equivalent argument for an optimal tariff in a world where you have some market power. That the risk there always is that you would set the rate incorrectly. That's right. Um, so it is a tricky thing, but it's an interesting. It's a very important point um, that we uh, that, that there would be much more complex ramifications than merely uh, a higher cost of driving. That's 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 very important to remember. Interesting thing. Um, well, last question. 
if you were uh, economic czar for the day, and you were an economic czar, but you were an economic czar in that political world we've been struggling with over the last few minutes, if you were an, an autocratic uh, economic czar and you could do a uh, – put a variety of things in place, where's the lowest hanging fruit? Where – you know, you've mentioned a gasoline tax as a possible example, but that might not be the lowest hanging fruit. If you could change some policies – that we live under today, what would be the ones that you think would have the biggest bang for the buck? What would be the, as an economist, the improvements that you think we could we could put in place that would have the biggest impact? Ignoring the political real, realism of these of the issues. Oh, well, let me mention, mention th- um, a few. Uh, one is would obviously be uh, higher uh, Fogovian taxes, which we've talked about. Another would be basic tax reform, which, which we've which we've alluded to. Um, the, I think the president's panel on tax reform had a had a really great. Set of proposals, and I think either of those would be a big improve. Either of the two proposals, proposals that they had would be a big improvement over current law. So I would be just just sort of pass one of those. Actually, the more radical of their two, which is very close to a sort of broad-based con- progressive consumption tax. Um, uh, and then I'd worry about entitlements uh, for the elderly, and in particular, I'd I'd, I'd phase in a very uh, significant but uh, but very gradual increase. In the retirement age, which people become eligible for uh, Social Security uh, and Medicare, in order to basically tell people, look, we're living longer, we're healthier in older ages, and therefore we we shouldn't expect to go on the government dole at the same age that was true uh, in your grandparents' day. Given our wealth, isn't it strange that we expect to go on the government dole at all? As 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 private savings have increased, as private participation in the stock market and other forms of saving have increased, it, it surprises me that the political traction for Social Security remains so strong, right? Most of us are perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves. Uh, we've we've been in, we, we live in incredibly productive times. We have an incredible standard of living, and the riskiness of life, despite some claims uh, to the contrary, the riskiness of life. Is much much uh, lower than it was in, in 1870 or 1920 or 1950, and yet the political demand for that that safety net for all of us remains. Do you find that strange? Well, Do you think there's any I, hope I, that I, that's well, going to change? I guess I don't find it strange only because I've lived lived in <laughs> in, the, in the society that has had it, and I think that fundamentally we have it because. Uh, in a world without the social safety net, most people would be fine. Most people would save for their retirement. Most people would manage to get health insurance through the private market, uh, and most people would be fine. But some people wouldn't, and some people would 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 um, either be unlucky or, or 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 too impatient or too short-sighted and, and not provide for their own retirement. And we as a society aren't going to let those that small percentage of the population uh, starve in, in in old age. Uh, and as a result of, of sort of that, the fact that we were very compassionate, and we don't want we don't want the, the short-sighted, the formerly short-sighted 80-year-old to, to starve, we're going to we, we, we provide um, a retirement benefits for, for basically all 80-year-olds. Very ineffective. We don't need to do it for all. Yeah, 55 such a strange way to do it. Pardon me. Such a strange way to do it, given that that you're right. There, there's a group of people who, for all those reasons, would find themselves uh, struggling, and and our hearts would go out to them. We could then choose to help them through collective action in the political process or private voluntary action. And instead, we've chosen – not chosen, but the system that has emerged is a collective action that helps every person. Um, it's um, It's got a tremendous amount of inertia about it, that yes. system. I think if you're, if you're starting the world from scratch in a state of nature without any political constraints, you might just institute some very general – uh, broad-based negative income tax along yeah. the lines that Mill Friedman proposed many, many years ago. Sure. And then once you had a, a floor in income through the negative income tax, you'd say that's enough. It's all we need for social safety that for people of any age, we wouldn't need anything else. But that's but we're we're very far from that world. Um, we are. I I think we're closer than we were 50 years ago. But oh, yes. we're still <laughs> we're still very far. I think that's right. Well, my guest today has been Greg Mankiw, professor of economics at Harvard University. He blogs at Greg Mankiw's blog. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast 
and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. Thank you.